Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I've got my partner in crime, Darcy, over here on the other side. How you doing, Darcy? That's me. <laughs> doing all right. That would be you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So we're back in the studio it. after a little bit of a break, so I could do mm-hmm. some traveling, have a little vacay. Yeah, man. Well, you, for you. I mean, not, you know. Yeah. So very exciting. I just stayed at home. <laughs> <laughs> but we had recorded a bunch of episodes in advance so that I didn't have to do any recording or editing or anything over the break. Yeah. And I had a nice little relaxing time laying by the pool, working on my tan, hanging out with the pups. So jealous. Doing all kind of fun stuff. Eating at all my favorite <sighs> restaurants. I know. You sent me that picture of Rubio's and I was so jealous. <sighs> Rubio's, I got, I got my waxing done, I got my massages, I got my pedicures, mm. my manicures, all the stuff that I can't get where I am now. So it was very exciting. Um, although at the same time, it was a little bit nerve wracking because we left our house and Mike came for part of the trip, but didn't come for the other part. And we've still been, the kitchen is still gutted and a mess. And there's just all these projects going on at the house that we haven't touched in a month. And you still got all those critters. Yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) good times. (laughs) So um, in any case, you've got some interesting, a little interesting case for us today. You want to jump right in? Yes. So I wanted to talk about this story. And by the time this is published, there's probably going to be 15 news stories about this. Because it seems like every 12 hours, there's new information coming out about this. But let's talk about the Murdochs. I read about this, like, when it first happened with the death of the first one. Oh, it's And I was like, oh, my God, this case is so bonkers. And then as it's kind of unfolded, it just keeps getting crazier and crazier. But anyway. Like, you think it can't get crazier. And And then it just gets crazy. Like, it's just bananas. So, all right. Let's talk about why we know about this this family in the first place. And okay. that is, back in June of this year, there was a double homicide of Maggie and her son. But I thought that happened where he killed the girl way before the death of the two. Yes, okay. but we didn't know okay. any of that. Okay, go ahead. Like, I'm talking about it in, like, the way okay. it was presented in the okay. news. Okay, so back in June... There was a double homicide of 52-year-old Maggie Murdoch and her 22-year-old son, Paul. And That in itself they was are, crazy, like, because it was just like, how yes. does this wealthy family end up dead like this? Just ha- all of a sudden has a double homicide, yes. So this happened in Moselle, which is like southeastern um, South Carolina. And all we knew is that a mother and a son were found murdered on this, like, family hunting property and it's like this massive property um and it's a 1700 acre hunting property and this family is a very very well-known established family they've been around for generations and generations and generations they're very prominent lawyers in the area okay that's how we're first introduced to this family comes to come to find out this double homicide may be related to another incident that happened two years prior where the son, Paul, 22-year-old Paul, was driving a boat. This is the same one that got murdered, right? Yeah. And he was driving a boat in 2019 on the lake, and he was very drunk, and he crashes the boat, and it results in the death of 19-year-old Mallory Beach. And the whole thing with that is 
again, like I said, this family, they're prominent lawyers. The the great-grandfather, the patriarch of this Murdoch family started this law firm, and he was the solicitor, which is like the prosecutor in this area of South Carolina. Subsequently, the grandfather held the solicitor role, the father had the solicitor, solicitor role, so on and so forth. For 111 years, yeah. this family has been running the show in southeastern South Carolina. So then you have this son, Paul, who gets in this drunk driving boat accident where a girl ends up dying. Yeah. And that opens up a whole investigation where he is potentially liable right. for her death in some kind of criminal manner, obviously, because he was driving the boat drunk. Yeah. Turns out that case was about to come to trial right before Paul and his mother Maggie are murdered. What? Okay. Yeah. So immediately everybody's like, oh my gosh, is somebody out to get this family because of this boat accident. Yeah, which seems reasonable, right? Sure. I mean, yeah, revenge, right? And so Alex, the father of this family, is the one who found Maggie and Paul on this hunting hunting property. So that happens, and we still don't know anything about the Mallory Beach investigation because obviously that's now been put on hold. Now that Paul and Maggie have been murdered, there's a new homicide investigation into that. And can I don't I'm not sure if this happens in that particular state, but sometimes you can't have a murder investigation if the person being prosecuted is dead. That yeah, that makes sense. I don't know if that's the case in South Carolina, but that that does make sense that that, that investigation would then stop, right? Right. So the other thing that happens with this is when when everybody is at the hospital after this accident, you have people because there were multiple people on the boat. And you have people coming forward, friends of Paul's, acquaintances of Mallory's, so on and so forth, who are saying that Alex, the father and the attorney, is trying to go into these other patients' hospital rooms where they're being treated and talk to them. What other patients? And get them to change their... The ones in the accident? The other people that were in the boat. Okay. Yeah, the, the, in the boat crash. Um, and try to get them to change their statements about what happened. They're trying to get somebody else to admit to driving. Yeah. So there's a possible obstruction of justice case there, too. Would Not surprising. Okay. Not surprising. Right. So then the, what happens is a couple weeks later, Alex Murdoch is, he calls 911 and says that on September 4th, so this literally just happened a couple weeks ago. He calls 911 and says that he's driving on a rural road. He has a flat tire. Somebody drives by, asks him if he needs help. And when he says yes, this person shoots him in the head. Oh, my God. So he's trying to make it look like their family is being targeted. It it looks like their family is being targeted. Yeah. You know, regardless of who's doing what. And let me... Let me pause because I have to tell this like kind of like side story. So I went to Auburn University. I've talked about that a lot. There's a tradition in Auburn. Um, there's two huge magnolia trees at the corner where the university meets the town. And the and every time we win um, a big game, a football game, any of that, um, we roll the, the, the trees. It's a big tradition. Um, it's It sounds weird, but you have to be there to experience it. It's kind of actually amazing. There was an Alabama fan, and Alabama, University of Alabama is a big, our big rival. There's There was an Alabama fan in, in 2010 who was upset that Auburn beat Alabama in the rivalry game, and he went and he poisoned these trees. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. He, there are like 150-year-old 150 150 magnolia trees. It was 
it, it was actually really devastating, but neither here nor there when I'm talking about that. So he does this, and everybody is in an uproar over this. And then a couple months after he's arrested and released, you know, on these charges or whatever, he makes a phone call from a gas station that somebody tried to shoot him. And immediately everybody's kind of like, I don't know. You know what I mean? So the only reason I bring that up is because I immediately got the same vibe when Alex Murdoch calls 911 and says somebody he, somebody shot him in the head. Trying to distract them. It's kind of like, I don't know, right? So, and even then we don't get a full story of what actually happened to Alex Murdoch because information starts coming out from the sheriff's department that says that when they arrived on the scene, he had no visible injuries. They then subsequently changed that to he had massive injuries. And I don't know how you screw that up. There's um, his attorney, Alex Murdoch's attorney, says that he actually had a skull fracture. It was a very serious injury, and he had to be airlifted to a hospital. I do believe he was airlifted. Huh. But I'll, say, I'll say that. He was also discharged within a few days. Hmm. You're not discharged within a few days for a skull fracture. Okay. So... Um, very fishy. We don't know the extent of the injury, if there were any kind of a thing. Right. So then it comes out, everybody's already questioning the story of what's going on. Why did this guy say he got shot? What really happened here? And then it comes out that he's now, his attorney says that he is entering rehab for an opiate addiction that has since been (laughs) exacerbated by the murders of his wife and child. And Here's the thing. I'm not going to, you know, speculate on whether or not he has an addiction and whether or not it was exacerbated. That is a thing that can very well happen in high-stress situations. And it is entirely believable that somebody, even a high-profile attorney in this country, would be addicted to opiates because we overprescribe them. That's a whole other episode. Yeah. Right? So he says he's going to rehab. Then his law firm that his great-grandfather started... And he is a, um, what's it called when you're like the, uh, like a founder, partner, partner. And he's a partner of this law firm. Like his, the last name is part of this law firm's name says that they have fired him for embezzling money from this law firm over a very long period of time. They don't say how much it is, but there's rumors around the internet that it is seven to eight figures. Holy moly. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Okay. And this is this is a personal injury like law firm. Okay. Um, so they're dealing with a lot of civil claims and injury claims and insurance. Probably large like ones too, if it's a yes. good firm. Yeah. And it's, I mean, obviously it's a well-established firm because they've been around for a long time, right? So then his attorney comes out and says, yeah, yeah. He, uh, in addition to this opiate addiction, he was embezzling money, and he's going to go to rehab. Oh my word! And then the state of South Carolina strips his law license. So, did you mention are they pressing charges? Did you already say that? I was about to. Okay. So, the latest on Alex Murdoch is they were able to find the alleged shooter who is a man named Curtis Edward Smith. Curtis is Alex's dealer. For the opioids. Of the, for the opioids. Oh, God. And then he says, and then this is through Alex's attorney again, he says that 
he had Curtis Edward Smith, who goes by the name Eddie, shoot him because he wanted his remaining son, Buster, who we're going to talk about in a minute. He wants his remaining son, Buster, to get the payout of his $10 million life insurance policy. And he believes Buster will not get this if he dies by suicide. This is interesting because it immediately makes me think that he had something to do with the shooting of his wife and other son. Oh, does it? Uh. Yeah. So here's the thing about this. The personal injury attorney doesn't know the policy of his own life insurance and whether or not it pays out by suicide or homicide. Uh, I'm not buying it. No. Um, I think that that was something to throw everybody off and it was so poorly executed. Like he, he effed up his own fraud basically. What an idiot. So then, yeah. So, so, so then the sheriff's department has, you know, warrants out for his arrest for fraud. He agrees he's going to turn himself in. Oh, that is where we are now. He has turn himself turned himself in. in. He, he is in custody. But the story's not done. Because let's talk about Buster. The one left. The one remaining child, who you would think is not, is not sullied in this story. Uh, not so great. fast. <laughs> I have a bad in feeling about this. <laughs> yeah, in 2015, there's a 19-year-old man in this area, Hampton, South Carolina, who dies from a blunt force trauma head injury. This is the year 2015, and this young man's name is Stephen Smith. Stephen Smith is gay. Oh. Okay. And the, the initial cause of death is classified as a vehicular hit and run that the side mirror of a car hit his head. What? And that's the cause of his death. On June 22nd of this year, so this was like two weeks after the murders of Maggie and Paul, Investigators announced that they are opening a homicide investigation into the death of Stephen Smith because of new evidence pointing to the involvement of Buster and maybe more Murdochs. Based on evidence they found at the scene of the murder of Maggie and Paul. Good Lord. So somewhere on this hunting property, they found evidence that Buster and maybe somebody else are involved in this murder of this young gay man. So his family obviously believes this is a hate crime. Yeah. Okay. So that is an ongoing investigation. Finally, we're not done. Is the mom guilty of something it, too? <laughs> she was the only one that's unsullied. The, the mom doesn't seem to be involved in any way. So surprisingly, right. Maggie seems to be seems to be pretty stand-up. I mean, I say that, and as soon as we publish this episode, something horrible is going to come out about Maggie, but I don't, you know, I don't know. So anyway, so in 2018, there's a housekeeper for the Murdoch family who dies. Her name is Gloria Satterfield. She dies of a traumatic brain injury due to a slip and fall in the Murdoch house. Oh, good Lord. Another one? Yep. But according to the Sheriff's Department, the initial cause of death on her uh, death report was natural causes. Which the mom killed her. She's 61. The mom killed her. <laughs> I mean, just, you know, at this point. The Murdochs are so, AF. So this, fa- like, it feels like, and I was texting with my friends about this because, like, we've all just been following this like crazy. It feels like 30 years of corruption is coming out all at once for this family. They've run this town 
and they've done whatever they wanted. These are rich, these are powerful people, and they've done anything and everything they've wanted. They've controlled everybody because they're, 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 they used to be prosecutors in this town, and they're also personal injury attorney, attorneys in this town. So that means the people that are prosecuting you are also suing you. That's got to be a conflict of interest. You would think, and yeah, and that, that didn't change until like 2011. That's crazy. Yeah. So this story, like, you couldn't write this. Like, it's going to be an HBO documentary, I think. It better be. Um, And there's, yeah, so there's like five, five deaths associated just with this one family and two of them are their own family so like Clearly, i don't you know don't want to be anywhere on. near the murdoch family because your life will be in danger no no i don't know what's going on but i i mean i think you're on to something when you said that you think the father alex is involved in the death of his son and his wife mm-hmm. i mean i can't explain why else that happened and then why that led to this domino effect maybe he was just like okay of all these other deaths so if they're alive and this case goes forward, it's going to create this scandal that we just can't recover from. It would be so much easier if they were just gone. So let's kill them. I cannot imagine this being the first, like, scandal, quote unquote, that this family's involved in. With this family being around this area for that long, you know what I mean? Well, maybe they knew like, about... Like, they have to have the, something that they're covering up. Maybe they knew about the maid death, too, and they were like, all of this is going to come out. we got to cover it up. I mean, maybe, but, like, I'm saying, like how do we know that their corruption doesn't go back generations and they just haven't been, have been covering it up? Because also at the hospital, when Alex Murdoch was trying to get into the other patients' rooms to have them change their witness statements, his father, Paul's grandfather, was doing the same thing. Not surprising. So there's going to be a lot more to come out about this family. I think the skeletons are making their way out of the closet right now. And I'm just... Just in time for Halloween. Right. And I can't like I can't stop reading about this. So there's a really good, um, really good slate article um, that 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 I read about this and I will post that like I was going to read like so many different articles about this. But there's this one slate article that just like concisely has everything. So so we'll just post that in the show notes because this is this story is bonkers. Yeah, totally. But anyway, that's all I got. What else you got going on in the news? Wowza. Yep. So, remember that case we talked about not too... Uh, well, that was probably about a year ago. Um, former nurse pleads guilty to sexually assaulting incapacitated woman who later <gasps> gave birth. Remember the, in that Arizona... Yes. Oh, that was awful. So, I guess this article came out a couple weeks ago. The nurse that was um, accused in that case, plead, he pleaded guilty and mm. to two felony charges for abusing and sexually assaulting an incapacitated woman who later gave birth. That was so awful. That was horrific. Yeah, so this man, Nathan Sutherland, was arrested and charged January 2019. DNA evidence led to him being tied to a child delivered by this 29-year-old woman who'd been incapacitated while living at Hacienda Healthcare in Phoenix. She'd been at the facility since age three after suffering mm. brain damage and entering a permanent vegetative state. So... He faces five to ten years in prison for the sexual assault charge and a lifetime probation for the vulnerable adult abuse charge. His sentencing hearing is scheduled for November 4th. So he's guilty AF. Now we just got to find out how long they're going to give him. Um, 
After more than two and a half years, all of us at Hacienda Healthcare are relieved that Nathan Sutherland has finally pleaded guilty to his awful offenses. We have cooperated in every possible way with law enforcement and investigators. Our hearts are with the victim and the family. Well, let's hope that this creates changes within that disgusting system that allowed something like that to happen. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate their statement, but they, they don't get to be off the hook that no, easy. No, no. You know what there I mean? There needs like, to be where, serious, where was the regulation? Where was the background oversight check? from now on yeah. of these centers? Because the fact that they had no idea that this woman was pregnant until she gave birth yes. is absolutely ridiculous to me. Yes. And a vegetative woman. like, And then the fact that you would do something like that to somebody who's in a vegetative state is just disgusting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I hope they throw the book at him and give him the maximum sentence anyway that absolutely. would be and that he gets some justice jailhouse justice but we'll, just, we'll I mean, keep you posted when we hear what happens yeah. on the sentencing which should be in a few weeks um next case um 320 pounds of contraband baloney found under car seats at Ew. the texas border <laughs> there's a picture of it so evidently the U. I'm trying to lighten the mood up just to scotch, but <laughs> U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents in Texas seized hundreds of pounds of contraband lunch meat. <laughs> evidently, a motorist tried to smuggle it across the border in a 2012 Honda Odyssey. Ugh. Hidden through the minivan were 320 pounds of bologna and 30 pounds of turkey ham. Rolls I don't of the, even want to know, like, how much that is. I don't know either. But rolls of the illegal bologna were tucked beneath seats, stacked under blankets, <gasps> jammed into the center console, and stuffed in a duffel bag. Absolutely not. <laughs> but I didn't even know this stuff was illegal. But I guess due to the potential for animal diseases, pork products are banned from entering the U.S. And these were all pork products. Oh, interesting. Is bologna so, pork? Yeah, that's Do what it says. I don't know. <laughs> okay. It's disgusting. I don't like bologna. I never have. Nope. Side, side story. When I was like six, five or six, my mom sometimes would make us sit at the table until we finished whatever we were supposed to be eating. And so she did that with oatmeal once and I sat there for two days. I wouldn't eat anything. I love <laughs> and oatmeal. she eventually just threw it away. And then the second thing was a bologna sandwich. And I hated bologna. I still hate bologna. I'll never eat bologna. I don't want that stuff in my mouth. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to taste no. it. It's just the, t- the texture, the taste, everything about it is disgusting to me. And she put it in front of me, and I was just not having it. I'm not going to eat this bologna yeah. sandwich. So I sat there again two days. She heated it up in the microwave thinking I was going to be like, mm. oh, this is delicious. Hell no. Nope. If I don't like it when it's cold, yeah. I'm not going to like it when it's heated up. <laughs> <laughs> my mom did that, too. I didn't sit there for two days. Like, I think it was probably like green beans or some kind of vegetable. Yeah. Didn't like vegetables as a kid. Cause you know, I'm just a kid. Um, all I ate was chicken fingers. Um, pretty much. Yeah. Didn't sit there for two days. I was a pretty stubborn kid, a while, but I was victorious. <laughs> I was too. I didn't have to eat any of it, <laughs> but this alleged meat smuggler was a 20 year old American citizen who lives in El Paso and they were caught. How much money do you think there is in meat smuggling? I don't know, but they, they gave him a fine of a thousand dollars and they seized oh, okay. and destroyed the meat. Minor. <laughs> It was funny because, like, the Border Patrol crossing agent said he spied the red, white, and green rolls of Capistrano brand bologna in the back seat and directed Ooh. the driver to a secondary inspection point where his cargo was fully revealed. So uh, I guess this African swine fever in the Dominican Republic 
um, has kind of highlighted the need to just really be sure that we don't have any pork products being brought into the U.S. Um. So I don't necessarily think it was Mexican-derived meat. I think they brought it from another place and tried to smuggle it over the border from Mexico. How peculiar. But evidently pork products have a potential to introduce foreign animal diseases that can be detrimental to our agricultural industry, they said. So this was 320 pounds... 320 pounds of bologna. And then earlier this year, a man was stopped in New Mexico transporting a load of 194 pounds in his trunk. A few weeks later, a New Mexico agent seized another 277 pounds of bologna hidden under the floor mats and seats of another what vehicle. What is going so on? So I want to know, are they taking this over the border to sell it because it gets a high profit or are they going to eat it? They're just stocking it for themselves and they're like, I no, love this bologna I, that, so much. I can't believe that's personal use. <laughs> There's no way that's personal use. I just wonder how and much it costs. I was going to say like, until you said they gave the guy a thousand dollar fine, I was gonna guess that like there's probably a shocking amount of money in, in bologna meat smuggling. It's weird. It's just I weird. can't imagine why, but I bet there's a lot of money in like I mean in smuggling anything. I can't imagine bologna though. Three hundred and twenty pounds. I of don't bologna. understand. I can't let's do some math. So if it's ten dollars a pound Have you ever had spam? It's like three three grand, right? So maybe three to five grand worth of bologna. Hey, if you guys if as listeners know how much money that bologna is worth, shoot us an email. Yeah. I really want to know. I'm curious about what the going rate for bologna is in the black market. Hey, three hundred and twenty pounds worth. Um Have you ever had spam? Is bologna different from spam? I've never uh, had spam. Yeah. Different. Different. Okay. Um, I have had spam. I do not like it. <laughs> spam I am. I do not like spam. It's disgusting yeah. too. But I'm not big on any of those. It's just processed meat. meat. Like I'm just not yeah. big on processed meat. Yeah, um, I'm not loving it. Interesting case. Lighten the mood a little bit. Um, next yeah. one. This is an interesting one in light of the fact that we just had a whole show that we talked about uh, cannabis and marijuana. But this is an interesting case because it's an, Ar- an Arizona mom was charged with child neglect for using medical marijuana while pregnant. And they prosecuted oh. her. And this case evidently is thought that it could set a precedent. Okay. So this just came out not too long ago. In, this was a couple days ago. But on May 4th, 2019, Lindsay Rigdell... Uh, gave birth to a baby boy in Phoenix, Arizona. After a difficult pregnancy, she'd had a particular condition that causes severe nausea and vomiting and had been hospitalized mm. twice. She'd gotten so dehydrated that she required IV fluids. And as soon as this baby was born, she could feel the nausea starting to dissipate. But a few days later, a social worker showed up in her hospital room and told her she would be reporting this case to the Department of Child Safety. Mm-hmm. This was also Rigdell's own employer at the time. So DCS then told Rigdell that it was placing her on Arizona's child abuse registry for the next 25 years. The agency argued that Rigdell had neglected her newborn son by treating her particular nausea, pregnancy-related nausea, with medical marijuana. And for those of you who are not aware of it, sometimes medical marijuana is prescribed for people going through chemotherapy or with Mm -hmm. nausea-related illnesses because it can induce a sense of hunger and sort of negate the nausea. So, okay, are they going after the the physician who prescribed medical marijuana? No, just going after her for abuse, child abuse and neglect, but... Evidently, they went to court and oral arguments were heard in the Arizona Court of Appeals in an attempt to appeal the Department of Child Safety's decision to have Rigdell's name removed from the child, regist- the child abuse registry. It's estimated that more than 10% of births each year in the U.S. are affected by illicit drug use. But what makes this particular case unique is that mer- medical marijuana isn't illegal in Arizona. Mm-hmm. 
So, like, how do they deal with this particular case? Um, and many reproductive justice folks out there believe that the outcome of this case is going to set a precedent for how Arizona, as well as the rest of the nation, considers marijuana use during pregnancy. Yeah, especially absolutely. since it's been decriminalized in so many states. In fact, there are 30 states that have medical marijuana legalized, including Washington D.C. and a lot of, or excuse me, and the 19 which allow recreational use, including Washington D.C. Alabama just legalized medical marijuana. Yeah. So we're now seeing these cases that are popping up where medical marijuana has been used after it's been legalized, and they're trying to subject and target these women who are pregnant. Can they, and you may not know the answer to this, but it's probably also a state-by-state thing, but can they prosecute you for smoking or drinking alcohol while pregnant? I believe they can. It's the same sort of a charge. It's child abuse and neglect. Okay. But okay. it's interesting that they're kind of narrowing in on this. And yeah. the fact is how marijuana impacts pregnancy and the developing fetus is not really known. It's not right. something that's clear to medical professionals right now. They don't really have the impacts of this. There is mm-hmm. some data out there that looks at the risk of preterm delivery and cognitive brain development. But the tricky part is pulling apart you know, what, what has to do with marijuana use and what has to do with other factors? Yeah. Cause so, at, and it's, you can't like create a research project out no. of this. Like you can't, you know, go and recruit pregnant women and say, I'm going to give you marijuana, smoke this. Because they don't know that, what it could do. It could damage it and they don't want to be liable. Yeah. I mean, but it's yeah, interesting. you can't do anything like medically that could be, you know, dangerous to, uh, you know, y- your research subjects. Um, so the only way to get information like this is to, uh, is like observational. Yeah. So like when, when you have identified that it had already happened and then you look at the effects and typically with stuff like this, and, and hopefully we won't see this with marijuana too much longer, but typically the stigma with, with marijuana users has been, they live more of a high risk lifestyle. Yeah. They don't make great choices. They don't make healthy choices. Right. So and oftentimes it's not just marijuana, it's alcohol, it's smoking. It's, a, yeah. it's a, other factors that are involved as well. But in this case, it doesn't look like that's the case, which is yeah. interesting. So teasing out what's like the cause of like from marijuana versus other lifestyle factors, there's a lot of confounding yes. variables that you, yes. just, that you can't control for. And that's a really difficult thing. It's going to be one of those things where just like with smoking, just like with alcohol, it's just going to take a really long time before we find out the effects. Yeah. I mean, there's so little information out there right now on yeah. the effects of marijuana during pregnancy. Um, doctors often recommend that patients come off drugs during pregnancy, just in mm-hmm. general, and they kind of lump marijuana use in with that. But some studies have found marijuana use can, infa- can affect the developing fetus's brain and it's linked to lower birth weight. The, mm. This is little, right? It's yeah. some studies, but like how many studies? Yeah. But the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommends that women who are pregnant plan- or plan to get pregnant or breastfeeding do not use marijuana because research is limited on the harms of marijuana use for pregnant right. women and their fetuses. According to Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, using marijuana during pregnancy can increase your baby's risk of developmental problems, and they recommend against it. This particular woman who's involved in this case began using medical marijuana when it was legalized in Arizona in 2010 to treat irritable bowel syndrome, which I didn't oh, I didn't know it could be used. I know for that. I didn't know that was a thing either. But when she found out that she was pregnant in 2018, she actually talked to her doctor, who already knew that she was using the medical marijuana, right. and they agreed that she would try to wean herself off of it. 
but she lowered okay. her dose, and then she said as soon as she did that, she started vomiting. So she couldn't keep any food down. She was so sick. She was concerned about the fetus's weight and development. So she felt mm-hmm. as though that was necessary to get her that she needed to, to keep eat herself again. healthy. Yes, but this particular um, condition that she has, I think Kim Kardashian had it. Um, uh, so did Kate Middleton. It's hypermesis gravidarum, mm-hmm. I think it's called, uh, or HG, and it's a condition that scientists believe may be caused by the rapid rise of hormone levels during pregnancy, and it occurs in less than 2% of pregnancies on the whole. Oh, that's interesting. And people who experience this can vomit more than four times a day and lose 5% of their body weight. Yeah, it can be really dangerous, I mean, and especially become, for pregnant women. Oh, yeah, and they become dehydrated to yeah. the point where they require IV fluids, and they could possibly miscarry. Yeah. So I can understand why she would have this concern. Um, and anyone who's in a similar position would likely as well. And she tried a bunch of other anti-nausea medications that her OBGYN prescribed, but none of them really mm. did anything. So she says that's when she went back to the medical marijuana. That's interesting. But when her son was born, she was taken to the NICU for difficulty breathing and diagnosed with strep throat and bleeding in his brain. But again... How much of that has to do with the marijuana use and how much has to do with the fact that maybe she was severely malnourished because of this particular condition and that was a contributing factor and not the marijuana use. Um, This little boy also had a jitteriness, they said, when he was born and his drug test came back positive Mm -hmm. for anti-anxiety medication, Benadryl and marijuana. So that's what happened when they tested the baby. And then immediately the hospital social worker called the Department of Child Safety to report this woman. That's really interesting. So she already had an existing medical marijuana prescription before she became pregnant. So it wasn't a physician that prescribed it during the pregnancy. Okay. And I think what some experts find a little bit troubling about these sorts of cases is the consequences of marijuana use can be unequal. Uh, People with lower incomes and people of color are far more likely to be tested for substance abuse during pregnancy than white people are. In 2018, the Administration for Children's Services, the ACS in New York City, filed a neglect petition against a black mother named Shakira Kennedy, who also used marijuana to treat her extreme nausea during pregnancy. When my twins were born, the hospital drug tested me without telling me, she told the New York State Assembly a few months later. They found marijuana in my system, but not in my children. Hmm. Still, the hospital called ACS, which, again, unequally distributed between different races when they report these types of things. But in 2013, um, a study was published... Um, that talked about incidents of arrest or forced interventions on pregnant women in the U.S. between the years 73 and 2005. They identified 413 cases. Most of them involved people of color and those with low mm-hmm. incomes. So 84% included an allegation that the pregnant woman had used an illegal drug. And these cases really took off in the 80s and 90s during this, can't speak, during the crack epidemic. And the war on drugs. Thanks, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan. So the media began spreading all these rumors that the predominantly black children of cocaine-addicted mothers would develop into criminals. So that was the huge fear. So in this particular case, this rig gal case, it's somewhat of an anomaly because this woman is a case manager for Arizona's Department of Child Safety herself. She's also white, and she refused in-home services. It was at that point that she received an email saying that her case had been substantiated for neglect, and she was fired from her job. Wow. 
She appealed that decision, and in February 2020, an administrative law judge sided with her, finding that the most that most of the DCS's evidence was not the kind of evidence on which a reasonable person could rely. Mm. However, though, even despite that, the judicial review of the case in Maricopa County Superior Court upheld the decision and declined to comment due to Rigdell's pending appeal. So when the, they start to look at this from a civil rights and politics point of view, um, these the, the uh, Director of Politics and Civil Engagement, Arizona NORML, I guess it's called Normal, an organization focused on reforming Arizona's marijuana laws, they heard about this woman's case, and she said she immediately wanted to help, and they filed a pro bono appeal for this woman. With her name on the central registry, Rigdale can no longer do the social work she's trained for as and instead making $5 an hour less working in medical records. So this is a big case. And in July, National Advocates for Pregnant Women filed an amicus brief in support of her case on behalf of 45 health organizations, doctors, and advocates, including comedian Amy Schumer, who herself suffered from HG during pregnancy. Hmm. Since Rigdell came forward... Experts say she's been approached by dozens of families in the same position, many of whom do not have the same resources to challenge the decision in their cases. One of these women is Jennifer Morris. She's 32 years old, and she's a white mother of four living in the Phoenix area. She works two jobs and began using medical marijuana for pain management six years ago because she preferred that to the idea of taking things like opioid Mm -hmm. painkillers, Vicodin, etc., so she, was, um, she mentioned that she was a medical marijuana patient to her OBGYN. The doctor never talked to her about marijuana or trying to come off it when she got pregnant. And when her daughter was born in February 2020, the hospital drug tested both of them. So they took notes on this oh, and were like, oh, God. we're going to come back and do this, which seems really like sneaky yeah. and shady. The results of that drug test came back positive. But Morris said she didn't hear from the DCS for three months, at which point they asked her to submit to random drug testing and enroll in an outpatient drug counseling program for medical marijuana. And I wonder how much they found in her system. It seems so ridiculous to me. And her name was also placed on the child abuse registry. And she feared that she was going to lose custody of her other children. But Arizona's child welfare law is just one of the state's laws, one of several state laws across the country that have generated controversy. Another one of them is Alabama's chemical endangerment law, which would punish anyone who took a child to an unsafe environment like a meth lab. But in 2013, the law was interpreted to include fetuses. So if you go anywhere near them and you're pregnant, they can prosecute you. And they said, basically, they explained that they were drawing a line in the sand, quote unquote. If a baby is born with a controlled substances dependency, the mother is going to jail, regardless of the situation. Since then, Alabama has prosecuted several mothers who used marijuana during their pregnancy, including two who used it to treat epilepsy. Alabama didn't legalize medical marijuana until this year. Many of these policies and practices for criminalizing reproduction and the behavior of people with reproductive potential have also been used to dissolve and separate families. Yep. They note that black and brown parents are reported to the criminal legal system and have their parental rights terminated at far higher rates than their white counterparts. So while she waits to hear the outcome of her case, Rigdell has been watching her baby boy grow up. He's two now. So evidently she's been contacted by so many other moms who went through the same thing or are currently pregnant and struggling and don't know what to do. Whatever happens in this case, Rigdale says she's hoping for a future where she can take the knowledge she gained from working for DCS and help other yeah. families navigate the child welfare system. 
I wish her all the yeah, best of really. luck. I mean, this is a very controversial topic. And it's a big deal. Particularly the since they of this case. don't know that much about what happens yeah. when they're using it. I get it if you're using very high quantities and you're doing it every day, that there would be a degree of concern. But it just seems like so many of these cases are kind of like, talk to me about what you're doing and then they go around and sneak around behind their back and report them to dcs right. and watch as the kid gets taken right away. because they're mandatory reporters um but they're all, but yeah. at the same time they're not providing the actual medical care to their patient in that moment and not providing yeah. advice and this is again just another example of i mean i'll i'll limit it to alabama because i don't want to like ruffle any feathers but my freaking state caring more about the birth of babies than the actual lives of anybody else once they're born. And I'm just so sick of yeah. it. And I just, it's so infuriating. Yeah. And it's so disturbing that it's like, Hey, well, we punish let's women. Go we report punish women all these sex, people. We, let's, let's punish all these people of color and don't worry about all the white people that are doing the same absolutely. thing. We punish women for sex, but yeah, you can go and buy penis pills on the internet unregulated, you know, yeah. I mean, but it's just, I could talk all day about it. There's no point in it. We'll probably get some nasty emails, but that is my opinion. It is my opinion alone. It does not reflect the opinion of this podcast or anybody else involved with this podcast. (laughs) So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about this other case that I saw that I found super, super interesting. And I kind of chuckled when I heard it, but then at the other, at the same moment, I was like disturbed, but Disgruntled HR executive trashed personal files, personnel files, and deleted 17,000 resumes after being fired. (gasps) So this woman, she was fired from 1-800-accountants over the phone, and colleagues reportedly saw her repeatedly hitting the delete key, Mm. according to prosecutors. The former head of human resources at 1-800-accountant has been convicted of maliciously destroying the company's personnel files and deleting thousands of resumes for prospective employees after she'd been fired. Megan Kalong, 41, of of Tampa, Florida, had been let go June 2019 after just six months at the New York-based online accounting firm because she had poor performance. One issue cited was that she had inappropriately locked a colleague out of a computer system after they'd gotten into an argument. What? As this woman was being fired over the phone, colleagues reportedly saw her repeatedly hitting the delete key on her computer. Hours after being escorted out of the company's St. Petersburg, Florida office where she worked, she logged onto an outside computer system used by the firm to manage its job applications and then deleted 17,000 resumes. How do you delete 17,000 resumes? She left messages containing profanity throughout the files. Wow, she did not take that well. This woman, I think her name might be Megan, but it's just spelled M-E-D-G-H-Y-N-E. Like, that's the craziest spelling of Megan, if that really is her name. Megan? She intentionally and maliciously caused severe damage to the computers of her former employee, said the district attorney for the Southern District of New York. Her actions wiped out information vitally important to the employer company and cost the company money and time to repair. She was convicted of two counts of damaging computers after a six-day trial in New York, and she faces up to 15 years in prison when she's sentenced December 2nd. She was previously convicted of forgery in 2008 in Florida and arrested in 2002 for writing bad checks. Does it say how much money, like, the damage was? 
Investigators said the company had spent over $300,000 over two years to build the system, and she wrecked what she wrecked cost them about $100,000 or more to get it working again. Oh. Many of the files were unable to be retrieved after that. Look, <laughs> that's so we've bonkers. all wanted to. <laughs> right? It just seems so wrong to me, though. Oh, no, no. Yeah, no, no. We've, we've all wanted to. I mean, yeah. not at my current job. I love my current job. Can't stress that enough. I absolutely love my current job. I've had jobs in the past where I would have uh, burned everything on the way out. <laughs> I can't say that I've had a job where I wanted to burn things on the way out or destroy things within the company, but I have wanted to give people a piece of my mind and say, this person that I worked with is a complete jerk and yeah. they deserve to be called out. But have I ever wanted to destroy information? No. No, I never wanted to destroy information, but I, there have been some, some people I've wanted to to talk, you know, to, to, to let their higher ups know exactly what's going on. Cause yeah. I don't think the higher ups know the, the full Undoubtedly. situation. But I mean, that's one of those things like, wow, wow. That's so bad. Yeah. Um, and she should be punished. I mean, she up have to, to 15 years in prison. Yeah, she should. There, there should there, and I'm sure there'll be fines associated yeah. with that. Reparation, whatnot. Restitution. Um, yes, restitution. That's <laughs> what I meant. Um, interesting. Um, and then there's this other case that I saw that I thought was particularly interesting given the rise in this use, but TikTok vigilantes expose identities of online bullies and trolls. Oh. Have you heard about this? I've not heard about this. I don't even know how so, to use TikTok. Social media network TikTok now has its very own vigilante, and he's taken aim at cyberbullies. Just one? That's what they say. Oh. I, although I'm sure there's more than one. But right. this particular one goes by the name of the Great Londini. <laughs> okay. This online Avenger has taken it upon himself to expose the identities of bullies and trolls whenever he finds them. Some worry that the popular TikTok stirs up just as much hate as it stops. Yeah. We are taking social media back from the bullies, pedophiles, scammers, and trolls, Londini said in one video. He kind of looks got like the mask on like that what was that it was a french fox so it's yeah. like it's like anonymous yes so scrolling through the tiktok account the great reveals dozens of videos of a masked figure voice electronically disguised calling out com commenters who make hateful remarks on the platform in many cases londini included personal information about the commenters including their real names and links to their social media accounts Whoops. According to the BBC, the great Londini claims to be able to find anyone's identity in no more than eight clicks. For child offenders, he uses the information to contact their parents or school. For adults, he notifies employers and even local police. <laughs> the man behind the great Londini, who identified himself only as Leon, said he sends all of his findings to TikTok. We do tell TikTok everything, Leon said. We send every piece of information. We report the account. The wow. anonymous mastermind said the mission of the great Londini, actually Leon and a group of volunteers with military hacking and cybersecurity expertise began when his friend's 14 year old autistic son took his own life. Oh, my friend, after a while, after he was grieving, he reached out to us and said, you know, part of the reason why he was so depressed is because he was being harassed a lot on social media. The boy's mm -hmm. father asked Leon and a few friends to track down his son's bullies. We were able to give him the information and say, Hey, do what you need to do with it. And he reached out to their parents and got, for the most part, some closure. According to Leon, the great Londini succeeds where TikTok's own content moderation fails. 
They're not doing their job, said Leon. In response, however, TikTok touted recent new additions to its moderation tools, including allowing users to block commenters or filter out certain words. We know there's no finish line when it comes to protecting our users, which is why we continue to invest in our team's products and features to ensure that TikTok safety is in place for our community. Hmm. Meanwhile, concerns have arisen that the Great Londini's mission creates just as much bullying as it prevents. Some of the clips on the account provide identifying information for individuals behind hateful comments. At least one video directs users to the group's Instagram page, where it uploaded the same video uses full user's name and profiles from Facebook. If you look at his profile info, he has listed his mother's and sister's accounts and other family members. A top mm-hmm. commenter on Instagram post read, The BBC also spoke to TikTok user, one TikTok user by the name of Liz, who received abusive comments after the Great Londini shared a clip of hers criticizing the Memorial Day holiday. Followers of the Great Londini responded by telling her to kill herself and attempting to contact her employer to get her fired. Whoa. It does seem hypocritical that they're an anti-bullying account, but a lot of their followers are bullying people on the right. platform. So that's a problem. I understand their passion, especially when it comes to veterans, Leon said of the uh, angry commenters. But we try to lead by example. We don't harass her. I wish the woman nothing but the best. For the time being, the great Londini shows no signs of slowing down. He's now operating his 10th great Londini account. The last nine were banned by TikTok. Until every bully, racist, and scammer is off the app, we're going nowhere. The mass figure asserts to viewers in one clip. It's interesting. It is interesting, and I appreciate the ideology ideology behind that, but at the same time, we don't know anything about this guy. Why is he the arbiter of right and wrong? It, yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, And it gets really... I just don't like the fact that other users that support him are now bullying people yes. in return. And I don't like that. And it gets really iffy that that this happened with like a, somebody criticizing Memorial Day. You know what I mean? Like, that's is that really what we need to be up in arms about when there's, you know, actual hate crimes occurring on the internet every single day? You know what I mean? Like that's kind of, I do wish they would do more for bullying though. I I wish that there was a way to kick anyone off who bullies because I I just find that so unacceptable, especially for a poor little autistic kid who was probably just doing it for fun and posting just little pictures of himself. And somebody has the nerve to be a jerk. Yes. And I absolutely agree. And there is something to be said for reducing the anonymity of the yeah. internet, of social media. Like, yeah. if you're going to put a comment, you should have to put your full name and. But there's you know, a fine line, it. right? I mean, there is a fine line. And, and when and they were I'm saying sure that I'm they posted with... sisters and family members' information yeah. as well, that bothered me a little bit as well. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this great Londini guy being the one who draws that fine line. You know yeah. I mean? Mm hmm. So. It's interesting because of the rise and the complete like takeover of social media on every aspect of our lives now. Yeah. And it's, oh, yeah. it can be so hurtful that people feel the need to go on to a platform and criticize every single little detail of people that are putting content out there. I get it. If you post stuff, you should have a thick skin, but some of it is just so completely unnecessary and just ridiculous. Yeah. And I think it's generational too. Like, we are in the generation that grew up without the internet for the most part. And so we don't feel the need to live our lives on the internet and put everything about ourselves on the internet. But there is a generation directly below us that has always had instant contact, you know, instant ability to connect with other people on the internet. And that is where they get their social interaction. Mm -hmm. And 
it, like there's a like there's a maturity to be learned about like when you put something on the internet, it's there forever. So like you have discretion, to learn that. People, yeah, discretion. And also, and like you don't need to put every little detail of your <laughs> life out there. Um, teach your kids not to be little jerks. Yes, jerks like, is the good word. They don't need to say stuff like that. They don't need to express every little thing yeah. that goes through their stupid little minds. And they're gonna regret if it. If somebody's when trying older. to, if somebody's trying to promote body positivity or some kind of cause that they believe in, you have no right to go out there and make a comment like you're yeah. ugly or you're How fat does and their stupid. Post affect you? If it doesn't affect you, don't worry yeah. about it. Leave it alone. If you don't like it and you don't agree with it, yeah. move on and look for something that you do exactly. agree with. There's and plenty like. of content That's on the internet. All there is to it. Exactly. There's so yeah. much out there. You don't need to focus yeah. on that. Why do you need to troll somebody or yes. be a bully? I agree. Unnecessary. So, um, and then one final article for the day, and we kind of talked about this when it came out, but this man photographed as baby on Nevermind cover sues Nirvana, alleging child pornography. So I don't think there's anything uh. later than what we spoke about, but I felt like it was important to kind of discuss. Um, Spencer Eldon, the man whose unusual baby portrait was used for one of the most recognizable album covers, was Nirvana's Nevermind cover, filed a lawsuit on Tuesday alleging that the nude image constituted child pornography. So this album cover, which was huge when I was growing up, depicts this little boy underwater in a swimming pool. He was an infant at the time, and his genitalia, I guess, was exposed. The image has generally been understood as a statement on capitalism, Mm -hmm. and it includes the digital imposition of a dollar bill on a fish hook that the baby appears to be enthusiastically swimming towards. So non-sexualized nude photos of infants are generally not considered to be child pornography under the current laws. Mm -hmm. However... This guy's lawyer says that there, he has kind of an unusual interpretation of the image to argue that it crosses a line into child porn because it makes the baby appear to be like a sex worker because of the money. That is the a, inclusion of the money in the shot makes him appear to be a sex a worker. That is a and a half. Yeah, just a scotch. Yeah. Um, he says that the defendants intentionally commercially marketed this child pornography and leveraged the shocking nature of the image to promote themselves and their music at his expense. Defendants also used child pornography depicting Spencer as an essential element of a record promotion scheme commonly utilized in the music industry to get contention, to, excuse me, to get attention, wherein album covers pose children in a sexually provocative manner to gain notoriety, drive sales, and garner media attention and critical reviews. The cover art subject, who liked the Nevermind album itself, he's 30 now, mm-hmm. okay? He is asking for at least $150,000 from each one of the defendants, who include the surviving band members Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic, yeah. Courtney Love, the executor of Kurt Cobain's estate, Guy Ossery and Heather Perry, managers of Cobain's estate, photographer Kurt Weddle, art director Robert Fisher, and a number of existing or defunct record companies that released or distributed the album in the last three decades. So, interestingly enough, though, the original Nirvana drummer Chad Channing is also named as a defendant who was part of the group at that time, even though he's been replaced by Grohl in 1990. But the album was recorded, the cover was shot when he was there. So he's being named as well. Interesting. Um, so this little guy repeatedly cr- recreated this pose yes. as a teenager and adult, which is the interesting part to me. He dove into pools to pose with, trunk- with swim trunks on on the occasion of the album's 10th, 17th, 20th, and 25th anniversaries. However, in most of the interviews accompanying these photo shoots, he expressed deeply mixed feelings about being famous for the Nevermind cover and whether he'd been exploited by it. 
Until now, despite his ongoing ambivalence about the photo's legacy, he hasn't described it as pornographic. In contrast, excuse me, what was a constant in the past is now that Eden said he was never compensated for the photo beyond the $200 his parents were paid for on the day of the shoot. In previous interviews, he said he tried to get in touch with Grohl and Novoselic on a friendly basis, but never got a reply. So he's pissed that they're not paying any attention to him. Yeah. A possibly new contention in the lawsuit is that Eldon's parents never even signed paperwork allowing for use of the image, which I highly, highly doubt. Neither Spencer nor his legal guardians ever signed a release authorizing the use in images of Spencer or his likeness, and certainly not of a commercial child pornography depicting him, reads the suit. The filing references some famous or infamous moments in rock album art history. The concept and creation of this image replicated previous controversial campaigns used to promote music with sexually explicit material depicting a child or outright child pornography, including the album covers for Scorpion's Virgin Killer, Blind Face, Blind Faith, and Van Halen's Balance. In 2016, the last time Spencer recreated the pose as an adult, he told the New York Post, the anniversary means something to me. It's strange that I did this for five minutes when I was four months old and it became a really iconic image. It's cool but weird to be part of something so important and I don't even remember. So, in 2008... To me, the issue is with his parents. I don't know. I I have mixed feelings about this as well, but in 2008, Spencer's father, Rick, recounted the 1991 shoot to NPR. His friend, Weddle, the photographer, calls up and is like, hey, Rick, want to make 200 bucks and throw your kid in the drink? The father recalled. I was like, what's up? And he was like, well, I'm shooting kids all this week. Why don't you meet me at the Rose Bowl Aquatic Center and throw your kid in the drink? And we just had a big party at the pool and no one had any idea what was going on. The NPR story went on to say that the family didn't think more about it until three or four months later when they saw a 9 by 9 blow up of the cover on Tower Records wall in Sunset Boulevard. Two months later, the article said Geffen Records sent one-year-old Spencer Eldon a platinum album and a teddy bear. <clears throat> so they're contending that they never signed anything releasing this. And they didn't know the purpose of the photo. I doubt it, though. Um, Wendell took a series of sexually graphic nude photos of Spencer to ensure the album cover would trigger a visceral sexual response from the viewer, which I doubt that was considered no. something they wanted to elicit a visceral sexual response. But Wendell mm-hmm. activated Spencer's gag reflex before throwing him underwater in poses highlighting and emphasizing his exposed genitals. Fisher purchased fish hooks from a bait and tackle shop to add to the scene. At least one or more film cartridges were exposed in a short period of time, which included at least 40 or 50 different images of Spencer. Cobain chose the image depicting Spencer like a sex worker, grabbing for a dollar bill, which is positioned dangling from a fish hook in front of a nude body with a penis illicitly displayed. This is just ridiculous. Yeah, it's... I mean, I get it. There's some probably some creepy people out there who are probably in some kind of sexual gratification by looking at this album cover. But come on. It's a little bit of a stretch. So evidently the Giffen Records people wanted to use a different image, but Cobain insisted, they say, alleging that the only alteration he would consider making was covering the infant's penis with a sticker that would read, if you're offended by this, you must be a closet pedophile. The, the label, of course, decided not to use that sticker. Yeah. I mean, I, there's two arguments to me, right? So if the, the, the problematic photo, whether or not you think it's problematic is, a, you know, a, your, your opinion or whatever, I guess. But that is one issue. And, and if that is the root of the issue, I can understand why he has concern about that now, having grown up and, 
because that wasn't a choice that he was able to make for himself, right? The second argument he's making to say that it depicts a sex worker is so absurd. I can't even wrap my brain around it. I don't know. I mean, I like feel like he's been so just... supportive of it all of a sudden. And then when they don't return an email, suddenly he's like, oh, I'm going to sue them. I'm pissed. That it, you know, well, it seems like he's been involved in all these recreations of the shoot. Right. And when Time Magazine wrote an article on the album's 25th anniversary, he chimed in when he was 25 and said, I got a little upset for a bit. I was trying to reach out to these people. I never met anyone. I didn't get a call or an email. I just woke up already being part of this huge project. It's pretty difficult. You feel like you're famous for nothing, but you didn't really do anything but their album. He said that he recognized the cover concept as genius. So he said it was genius. In fact, the Nevermind emblem has been tattooed on his chest. Yet he added in the 2016 story, it's hard not to get upset when you hear how much money was involved. When I go to a baseball game and think about it, man, everybody at this baseball game has probably seen my baby penis. I feel like I got part of my human rights revoked. Among the past and present record companies named in the suit besides the now defunct DGC and Geffen Imprints are Warner Records, MCA Music, and the Universal Music Group. So I feel like... His issue is not with Nirvana. His issue is not with Nirvana. His issue is with his parents because they made this decision for him and he's upset that now he doesn't get his proper yeah. due or he that he doesn't get the proper recognition that he can't go hang out with the remaining members of Nirvana because yeah. he was on their album cover. He wasn't photographed no. to be on their album cover. From the way you told that story, it was just and a photo for him to be like, I can't go to a game without everyone looking at me. I'm the baby. No one knows. Who looks no at one that knows. picture <laughs> and looks at this guy, this adult man, and says, aren't you that guy from the ne- Nevermind album? Nobody. Literally nobody. The only way they know it is if he freaking announces it. And he yeah. has by recreating the scene. It's, I just, it seems like he just wants money. It's a grab. It's a grab for money. Or, I mean, or he wants, like, it sounds or like he wants to hang out with Dave of fame. Girl. Like, he wants his 15 minutes of fame. Like, just if like Dave Grohl gave him a call back, none of this would have happened. Is kind of how it sounds. A little bit, yeah. I mean, for crying out loud. It's interesting. But, like, saying that this is child pornography this, is just Take this up with your parents, ridiculous. man. This is, this is not a legal matter. Yeah. I mean, if he hadn't signed a waiver or his parents hadn't signed a waiver, I could see that could actually be a real issue. Yes, but not for child pornography. Yeah, no. For the rights of the photo. Yeah. Right, which is, is which is an entirely different thing. Which I don't think is what he's alleging no. in this instance. So, interesting case. Yeah. Um, and particularly since I, I'm a big Nirvana fan. Oh, man, me too. I mean, I'm a Seattle native originally, and they were huge, and I never got to see them in concert, and I was just so bummed yeah. by that fact. In any case, interesting stuff. I thought I would give it a shout-out on the show and talk it out with you, because when we first saw the article, we were both just like, what, really? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. I'm offended. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, unless you have anything else to add, let's go ahead and wrap it up. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about any of the things we've talked about on the show today, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. I would also ask that you all please rate review and subscribe. Um, it's very important to us. It helps us stand out on searches for people that want to hear about other content, like those stuff that we are providing. Darcy, what's our social media? Yeah, you can find us on Instagram. We are at the BFD podcast. We post pictures and all that good stuff of our various cases. We may or may not post the Nevermind album cover. Uh, you've <laughs> already seen it, I'm certain. So, yeah. There will be a sticker over the baby. Yeah. Thing, so. yeah. 
Well, please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. We hope you've enjoyed this very special current events and crazy cases in the news case for the day. Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye! Bye, guys.